Welcome to Journey Church Tucson Sermon Podcast. We are an evangelical free church seeking to honor God by making disciples that learn about, love like, and live for Jesus. Hey, uh, good morning, way over here, all the way to over here, and everyone in between. As you can see, we are under construction as a church. Um, what a great metaphor. We are all under construction as individuals, correct? Anyone arrive yet? Okay, because this church ain't for you if you've arrived. Go, go start your own church or cult or whatever that is. Because the rest of us are under construction. And it's a long process with lots of bottlenecks. And let me just say this morning, it's a long process. And we are now in a season of bottlenecks. So structural engineer uh, designing and writing off. Uh, bids from contractors, payments from insurance companies. We have no reason to think that uh, things are going to come to a screeching halt. There are plans, but I want to just thank you for being gracious, being flexible. This is a pretty great place to meet. A lot of churches would die to have this right here. And so we're grateful. And I'm just grateful for the kindness, the goodness, the generosity that's been displayed so far. The reasonableness not making hay out of stuff. Stuff happens. Um, I don't know what it's like in Phoenix anymore. I've been gone for 20 years, so it might be the same up there, but I call this Tucson time. So you got a project, and you go, two weeks. That means two to three months. Our roadside uh, walls are supposed to be up. The whole crew got COVID a week and a half ago. I don't know, maybe, <laughs> but that's just how it goes, and so um, just a call for patience and kindness and humility. And I find it so beautiful that at least 10 months ago, the Lord saw this coming and led us to plan for a study through the New Testament epistle of 1 John. An epistle that argues for genuine Christian maturity as being an expression of genuine Christian grace and love for one another. Isn't that cool? That in the midst of this, it was pre-planned, that God knew, and that we would need to be discipled, that our, our culture of goodness be reinforced, as well as each individual, as we go through trials and difficulties and adversities in our own lives, our marriages, our households, our finances, we are people under construction, and we need to bear with one another in genuine Christian love. We need to love each other from the heart, even when, even when one another becomes icky and off-putting. You ever sat with someone in their pain? I mean, real, real committed Christians that experience deep and profound long-term pain, even they can become off-putting. And the text before us, 1 John, is all about loving one another well, even going through extended seasons of off-putting pain. And uh, our rough edges, the way we say things, the way we act in public and in private, that we would put up with and love one another genuinely from the heart. First John was written by the last living apostle, John, son of Zebedee, Zebedee, 
to believers and churches under his spiritual care. They might, they, they needed to learn to understand what it means to walk in the light, to obey the Lord's commandments, to love one another from the heart, to abide in Christ, to hope in Christ in the midst of this life. They were in the midst of profound persecution and pain. In addition to all the normal challenges that people have living life on a fallen planet. They were being discipled by John to keep their eyes on Jesus and allow him to live his life in and through them so that even in the midst of this crazy life, they might have fellowship, genuine, abundant life, and everlasting joy. We've been learning as we've gotten into 1 John that they're really lessons on what it means to walk in the light so that we can have life, joy, and fellowship. Several weeks ago, lesson one, walking in the light, was all about uh, walking in the light is more than a sin, man- uh, sin management strategy, but walking in the light demands that we deal with sin in our lives. Demands it. We cannot ignore sin and be walking in the light. Doesn't mean that we fall out of adoption, but it's a commandment, and it's impossible to say that we walk in the light and yet practice sin and not deal with it. Lesson number two of walking in the light dealt with the relationship between obedience and intimacy, and we learned that obedience leads to intimacy with the Father. And in the same way, intimacy with the Father flows into obedience. And in the last week, Pastor Tyler taught us that walking in the light demands that we love one another, that it's an old commandment refurbished and empowered in the glory of the new covenant. That for the first time we can actually do this from the heart because the heart's been changed. The Holy Spirit is in us now making us good from the heart. But these verses today seem like a salutation. A salutation that maybe he missed and was coming back to a description of maybe a teaching about John's intended recipients. So why don't we go ahead and look at these three verses. They're found in 1 John chapter 2. If you have your Bible, and I hope you do, because we are now analog. There's no projection right now. We do have some tech, and we're saying hi to people joining us later or currently online. and uh, So we still have that uh, feed going, but no projection in here. If you don't have a Bible, you'll see these verses actually printed in your worship folder. So you can turn there. And hear the word of the Lord, where John says this, 1 John 2, 12 through 14, I'm writing to you, little children, because your sins are forgiven for his name's sake. I am writing to you, fathers, because you know him who is from the beginning. I'm writing to you, young men, because you have overcome the evil one. I write to you, children, because you know the Father. 
I write to you fathers because you know him who is from the beginning. I write to you young men because you are strong. And the word of God abides in you. And you have overcome the evil one. Now this new section concerning what appears to be the spiritual state of his recipients stands out from the surrounding material. It's difficult to attach to what has preceded as well as what comes after. It seems abrupt, maybe even a tad bit out of place. So the question is, what is John's purpose for this? Why the startling shift in information? I would point out that John has just written some very direct things about what it means to walk in the light as he is in the light. In question, who is sufficient for these things? Who would say, nailed it, and what is going to come after are going to be some very straight teachings. John is not going to pull his punches about what it should look like to say we have a relationship with the holy God of the universe. Some very challenging information before and after. In fact, the verse immediately before this text, 1 John 2.11, just listen to how this sounds. But whoever hates his brother is in the darkness and walks in darkness and does not know where he is going because the darkness has blinded his eyes. And the question by that statement and other statements that have already taken place and other statements that will come afterwards in, in John's epistle and that we, are, we will unpack over the weeks is it possible that we could hear in these statements, is it possible that his first century recipients could hear something like, I don't think you're a real Christian at all. You're not saved. You don't walk in the light enough. Because you don't love well enough. When my daughter was uh, three years old, this is my oldest, I don't know, I, I don't know if I see her right now. Um, when she was three years old, we're in the car, she's in her baby seat, and she's sucking her thumb, and a dude on a motorcycle pulls up next to us, and he's smoking a cigarette. And my little daughter says, Mommy, that man's going to hell. She's grown out of that theology, and, and let me just tell you what we told her. Smoking will not send you to hell. You'll just smell like you've been there. <laughs> Use your topal tooth polish, okay? In a similar manner, it's possible that John is concerned that the straight talk that he's giving as to what it means, what it looks like, what, it should, should, what should be realized in our lives as we are children of God could come off so harsh 
that perhaps he is concerned that they will hear the wrong thing. And I would argue that John writes this section in order to reassure his recipients that he is not doubting their faith, salvation, or spiritual conversion, even as he challenges their walk in Christ. He is teaching real Christians about their true position in Christ in the midst of talking about real-life behavior of how we should then live. And in the process of assuring them that he believes that they are in Christ, we learn so much about what is ours as sons and daughters of the Most High God. These are precious, precious verses. Let me ask you this beyond assuring them that he is not questioning their genuine conversion. Why would this be good for them, and why would this be good for us? Why does this matter? Let me ask a second question. What difference would it make in your mind, your heart, the way you make decisions, the way you do life and relationships, if you truly understood, knew, and believed what God says is true about you and for you? I'm not talking about quoting it for a theology exam. I'm saying it feels true because you believe it to the very core of your being. What difference would it make for you if your heart truly believed what God says is true about you? You ever heard of the term flow? It's not a girl's name. Flow. Pop psychology. Here's a quick definition of flow. The mental state in which a person performing an activity is fully immersed in a feeling of energized, focused. Full involvement and enjoyment of the process of the activity. The complete absorption in what one does and resulting transformation in one's sense of time. Flow is the melting together of action and consciousness. Many years ago when we were contemplating brain surgery for our son Timothy... I was uh, attempting to contact Ben Carson and uh, get him to do the surgery. He had already retired from brain surgery, but I was reading Ben Carson's. I actually got to meet him eventually, Um, but Ben Carson in his book, Take the Risk, was a major part of us having the courage to go to Cleveland Clinic and do brain surgery. In that book, Ben Carson describes a very intricate and complex brain surgery on a young patient. And he's lost in the experience. It's a marathon brain surgery. And after the surgery, in the debrief time with his team, they explained back to him in on wonder, Dr. Carson, Do you even understand the complexity and beauty of what you were doing? We have never seen such giftedness. To which Ben Carson had to admit, I have no idea what you're talking about. He didn't know how long the surgery went. He was fully immersed in the moment of knowing his calling and gifting and 10,000 plus hours of practice just in the moment. That is 
flow. Let me ask you again, what difference would it make to understand, know, believe, and be practiced in what God says is true about you and for you? How would that impact your attitude, your relationships, the way you love others selflessly? What, what would it do if Colossians 2.10 became your heart theology? In him you have been made complete. What would that do for you if your heart believed that fully? What would Ephesians 1.3, he has blessed us in Christ with every spiritual blessing in the heavenlies. What would that do for your heart if you believed that in your heart of hearts? How would it transform your life? What about 2 Peter 1.3? His divine power has granted us to all things that pertain to life and godliness. What would it do for you if your mind, your heart, your very soul believed those things? If you owned it as the very fabric of who you are, how would it change your life and your behavior? What difference would it make for you? I believe it would be spiritual flow. You know, Solomon said this in Proverbs 23, 7. I'm reading from the New King James Version. For as a man thinks in his heart, so is he. If these truths and these realities get down into our very heart, the very core of who we are, it is who we become. That spiritual flow. And that brings us back to John's agenda for these verses and to the bottom line of our message. If you have your notes, because you're not going to see it you know, on a screen, take out your notes, fill in the blanks, I'll walk you through this. Here's the bottom line for our message today. Rather than doubting sonship, daughtership, choose whatever term based on your gender. Rather than doubting. And I know there's a, there's a place for that to go, God, do I really get it? Am I a child of God? There's a place. But really, the solution to that is very simple and clear in the Bible. And there's a lot of people that are geeking out over that, that just like, would you get over it? Either he died for you and you believe or you don't. End of story. Instead of doubting sonship, believe and live into all that is ours as sons and daughters. Amen? That means so be it. Yes, absolutely. Rather than doubting sonship, Believe and live into all that is ours as sons and daughters. Because we will never be able to consistently walk in the light, there will not be spiritual flow. We will not flourish as believers if we don't get these profound realities deep into our soul theology. Now, John addresses what appears to be three subsets in his congregations. Little children, fathers, young men. And we have three possibilities to understand these designations. So quickly, um, some scholars and, and commentators believe that these are chronological ages, like we just dismissed our children and junior hires. That's the opener. And then there's these older men, whether they're newly saved or not, they're just old. Old women, they're just old and then there's these young people in the middle. And some theologians historically have thought that. Number two, these are, seem to be levels 
or stages of spiritual development. And then still others and many others actually teach that these are that which is or should be true of all genuine Christians. I like how I, Howard Marshall say, says this. These qualities should be true of all believers. Nevertheless, it is possible to associate new converts with a fresh knowledge of the forgiveness of sins, mature Christians with a deep knowledge of God, and young men with vigorous strength to overcome evil. And so he takes a two and three approach, as do I. These things are ours in Christ Jesus. Everything that's said about the, the children, little children, young men, and fathers, everything is ours in Christ Jesus. At the same time, one cannot deny that we seem to grow over time and learning and obedience and practice, what is called sanctification, that these things seem to follow exactly the development of believers as they come to faith in Christ and grow old in obedience. Not automatically, but as they intentionally follow the Lord. So, that is going to be our approach, but I do want you to know that everything that's said about any one of these can and should be yours today. And on the other hand, you'll go, oh, that's where I'm at, and that's where I'm stuck, okay? So let's unpack this. You can see that there's parallel statements, three categories, and John hits each one two times, with minor variances except for fathers. So here's what we discover about little children, and then second time around he just says children. And what do we learn about the children? Here's what we learn, fill in the blank, dearly loved and forgiven. That is why they are called children and little children. A term of endearment. Parents, compassionate, committed love for the child and forgiven. And then spiritual birth, certified. There's no question. He's not dangling them over hell. You don't show enough evidence. It's based on a belief and a profession. I believe that what you said is that you believe in Jesus for the forgiveness of your sins, and John says, certified. God says, certified. You are a son or a daughter of God. I am writing to you little children, verse 12, because your sins are forgiven for his name's sake. And then again in verse 13, I write to you children, this time without little, because you know the Father. Now, first you'll notice there's, there's two different, little children and children, because there's two different words in the Greek. And then secondly, there's two different promises attached, but they're all in this collection of children. Okay, so here's the words. Little children is technion. It means offspring or born ones, infants, babes. And the second term, pation, means little ones under intentional parenting. 
or discipline. A parent's guiding through childhood, and, and both are together and both are true. And I would also say that these descriptions necessarily describe all of John's readers and all of us who have placed our faith in Jesus as the forgiveness of our sins. This is where all genuine conversion begins. You must be born again, Jesus told Nicodemus in John chapter 3. There's two different promises attached to this stage of spiritual experience. First is forgiven. This is a compound word that means to send away from. Your sins have been sent away from you. It is what God does with our record of wrongs at the moment that we believe that Jesus died for us. It is synonymous with conversion, spiritual new birth, justification, adoption into the family of God. Our sins are sent away once and for all. There's a couple of metaphors in the scriptures. Micah 7:19, the prophet's talking about the nation of Israel that one day God will forgive all their sins. And he says these words, beautiful word picture, you will cast all our sins into the depths of the sea. You know how deep the Marianas Trench is? It's not just the shallows of the sea, it's the depths of the sea. Where things go down there, they get crunched and destroyed. The pressure is so great. Psalm 103 verse 12 is, is even more profound, I believe. As far as the east is from the west, so far does he remove our transgressions from us. And if we're thinking about a linear to outer space, or we're thinking about a globe in the east to the west, when do the east and west finally meet their limit? Infinity doesn't happen. So that's what the Lord does for his born ones, positionally. We can still sin, and it can hurt fellowship, and we need to deal with it. That was lesson number one many weeks ago. But positionally, as sons and daughters, in order to be a son or daughter, the barrier of sin and rebellion and the record of the wrongs must be eliminated. And they were eliminated by Jesus, the Son of God on the cross for us. How do I know for sure that that's true about me? What must I do in order to be assured that the record of my wrongs have been erased so that I might be a son or daughter of God? I'm just going to pick one. We could pick from the reading today, John chapter 1. It's in there. But listen to the same epistle that we're studying, 1 John 5, 1. Oh man, I wish I had it right here. It's so clear and simple and easy and people want to add stuff to it and proof and evidence and data and information and talk about what it really means. How about if it's really this simple? Everyone who believes that Jesus is the Christ has been born of God. Mic drop. Boom. To tell us die. It is finished. Today you will be with me in paradise. What if it's that clear, that simple? Sin sent away, born of God. Born of God, sin sent away. That's the equation. To become a child of God. Today, are you a child of God? Do you believe Jesus died for you and that he is the Savior? Jesus is the Christ. 
you have been born of God. Isn't that crazy? Crazy, clear, and simple? John said it. And the same one that's going to give straight talk, now walk in the light, don't say this or that, but he's not doubting sonship. Sonship and daughtership is so clear and so easy. Here's a second thing that I just need to point out. Why does he say, your sins have been forgiven for his name's sake? That's a powerful one. You know, I just did a Lambsgate devotional out of Psalm 23 on Monday. David says the same thing. You lead me in paths of righteousness for his name's sake, for your name's sake. See, we tend to think that it's all about us. And that it's all sentimental, sappy, and it's all about me and myself. And don't get me wrong, it is about us and it is about me. I'm not being funny here. It is the glory of God, of a holy, infinite, and loving God. It is the glory, the greatest glory of God to love and forgive rebellious humans and bring them into his family. He saved you because it's his greatest glory and his greatest joy. Your sins have been forgiven for his name's sake. And he leads us in paths of righteousness for his name's sake. Because it's his heart. Here's a second thing. You know the father. And it's kind of the same thing he says about the father's without something else added on to it. But you know the Father. What is said about these young children under parentage is that they can recognize the face and the voice of their Father. To know is in the perfect active indicative, second person plural, you all, and it's indicative, indicative, but it's in this perfect tense and the perfect tense in the Greek describes an action which is viewed as having been completed in the past, once and for all, not needing to be repeated. And what does that mean for us? We know the Father. That's not going to change. He is the Father. We're adopted into his family once for all. And as gnarly and immature as we can be, you still know the voice and the face of the father. I love little baby Luke, my grandson. He knows the face of his grandfather. And I love to get up in his little girl's, hey, buddy. And he's like, big grin. It's like, oh, my goodness, my heart's melted. He recognizes me, I think. You, you can try, try it, and if he smiles big, I'll go, oh, okay. But, oh, man, and then he knows his father, Taylor, and his mother. He, and he's going to grow up, and he's going to explore, and he's going to break their rules. And, but he knows his father and his grandfather and his grandmother. Oh, my goodness. Dearly loved and forgiven, spiritual birth certified. Since forgiven, and we know the face and the voice of the Father. Well, next are the fathers. Ready for the fathers? Because it doesn't seem to follow the sequential order, but this is the, the second group that he introduces. Let's go with it. He says in verse 13, I am writing to you fathers because you know him who is from the beginning. And then again, verbatim in verse 14, I write to you fathers because you know him who is from the beginning. 
similar to what is said about the children, you know the Father, but with this beautiful addition, Him who is from the beginning. What is John thinking about here? Why the addition? I believe that John became obsessed with this reality as he grew up and into Christ in his old age. 1 John 1, 1 through 2, the beginning of this epistle. He begins, these are the first words, that which was from the beginning. And then we actually read it in our, in our scripture reading, John chapter 1, verse 1 through 18, just verse 1, first, first phrase. In the beginning was the word. In hearkening back to Genesis 1-1, in the beginning, in the time before times, why does John add this for fathers? I believe that John was overwhelmed with the idea that an infinite, eternal, majestic, unapproachable creator, a holy God who is said to dwell in unapproachable light, and he is a holy and consuming fire, could also be our personal, loving, and present Father. One to be known and experienced in a deeper and more trusting way over time. What do you see in godly people who mature well? They mature well spiritually. What do you see in them when the storms of life come and they get beat down, they lose all their money, they, all kinds of crazy stuff I've seen happen to Truly mature Christians. Old Christians does, does not mean mature. I'm talking about truly mature, spiritually mature Christians. What does it do for them when they learn to love, trust, obey, and follow the Father over time? The one who is from the beginning. Here's a fill in the blank. Fathers, I believe it produces a settled intimacy with our infinite and eternal Father. There is a settled, anchored in eternity kind of intimacy. Dallas Willard, this has just come, come to mind. Dallas Willard, um, who died a couple years ago, spiritual formation guru, um, professor, philosopher at USC, Christian apologist. Dallas Willard had the idea that mature believers, when they die, don't even really know it. They don't really recognize it. Why? Because they're living in such intimate love with the Father that the veil just slips their imagination and they just step through. And they don't even know what's happened. One of his biographers says, yeah, he's probably not even sure yet that he's dead. They just had a high estimation of where, how, how he grew in, in the faith and walking with Jesus. But this is that settled intimacy of knowing the Father in such a way that the things of life no longer rattle our cage. Um, back to Psalm 23 uh, and what I was, I was teaching on, on uh, Monday with the Lambsgate staff. It's interesting, you're probably familiar because you've been to a funeral. Psalm 23, it's everywhere all the time. But it says, and it actually follows exactly the same stages of Christian maturity. Did you know that? There's growth in seasons of time explained in Psalm 23 
And it's a, a fascinating thing in verse 3 that, that the, David says, Yea, though I walk through the valley of the shadow of death, and he sees it. It's like, this is the valley of the shadow of death. I will fear, fear no evil. You're with me. Your rod and your staff, they comfort me. But they're walking, and he's recognizing this is terrifying. But in the next season, in the next two verses, he describes another scene. You prepare a table before me in the presence of my enemies. You anoint my head with oil. My cup runs over. And then by the end, he's going, surely goodness and mercy are going to follow me all the days of my life, and I'll dwell in the house of the Lord forever. What changed between the valley of the shadow of death and the high country? And going back down the mountain to the master's ranch, the, the good shepherd did not change in that storyline, but the sheep changed. The very one that was terrified in the valley of the shadow of death, everything rattled his cage, and God was faithful and did not rub his nose in it. But in the next scene, he's actually laying down and feeding in the presence of enemies. Terrifying circumstances, but the sheep has been transformed. And I believe that this is a picture of maturity in Christ. That the storms keep coming and sometimes they even get worse. But the sheep has changed. A practiced intimacy with the Father. Wouldn't you love to grow in that direction? It's yours in Christ Jesus. Here's the final group. Young men. Verse 13, middle, middle part of it, I'm writing to you young men because you have overcome the evil one. And then again in verse 14, middle section, I write to you young men because you are strong and the word of God abides in you and you have overcome the evil one. And what are we to make of this? Here's the fill in the blank, young men. Strength and victory because of spiritual intentionality. Strength and victory because of spiritual intentionality. This is the most emphatic of the stages with the most additional information. Why? Because it's where most of us find ourselves in the day-to-day -day struggles of life and following the Lord. The reality is that life is hard for everyone. And for those who want to truly lay hold of life eternal, even harder. This is what Jesus says, enter by the narrow gate, for gate, the gate is wide, the way is easy that leads to destruction. And those who enter by it are many, they're looking for pleasure and ease and comfort and immediate gratification. And it leads to destruction, but he goes on to say, for the gate is narrow and the way is hard that leads to life and those who find it are you. Life is hard and spiritual maturity and victory even harder. I'm doing a class on Wednesday on the pastoral epistles, and so that's in my mind as well. 2 Timothy 3.12, indeed, all who desire to live a godly life in Christ Jesus will be persecuted. It's even harder. It's even harder. Young men and young women, spiritually speaking, have it hard. They're in a hand-to-hand -hand combat with the enemy of their soul. 
The spiritual life of faith and obedience is hard. But this is where true spiritual growth and flourishing occurs. It requires a fight. And nobody is getting out of it without this struggle. Do you know the struggle? I can't even tell you everything and, oh, that's Satan attacking you. People say all kinds of crazy things and think Satan's attacking. Who knows? Who knows? I'm not here to, to, to say it is or isn't um, or, or how all that works. But listen, I do know this. The moment he loses one of his to the kingdom of God, the moment that one of his under his dominion believes in Jesus as the Christ, and he loses them to his enemy, that is when he begins to prowl and roar, not before. No need to prowl and roar for all his hellions, all of his lost ones, all of his deceived ones. He's got them. But when the light comes on and they turn to Christ, oh, that's when he fires up his weapons of war. And I think we get in our mind, is there any place where I can get to easy street? I mean, I've already suffered enough. Can we just have it good? Can I have my cake and eat it too? And I'm saying, no, I'm sorry, that's not true. And John would tell you, no, that's not true. This is hand-to-hand combat. This is the fight for your life. Because the enemy wants to do everything he can. He's already lost you to heaven. But he wants to do everything he can to neutralize your Christian witness, to minimize your Christian faith and maturity. And so he's coming guns a-blazing. And this is what happens with young men and young women in that stage of life. We're in for it. And can I just warn you, you think you're, you're a father? And you, oh yeah, I remember that season. Be careful. Be careful. I don't think we ever get out of this completely in this lifetime. No way. No way. That sometimes our biggest giants to slay are still in front of us, no matter how mature we become in Christ. The idea here is that spiritual maturity requires fight, adversity, and persecution. It's just part of the storyline. But I also want you to notice the word overcome. It also is in the perfect tense. Completed action. Complete once and for all. That positionally in Christ and what he accomplished on the cross, we are now considered overcomers. A.T. Robertson says, a permanent victory after conflict. The victory has already been won by Jesus on the cross and conquered by the grave, his victory over the grave. I love this t-shirt. I had a youth intern, and it had a, it's a cartoon picture of a real rugged cross, like the cross of Jesus. And the caption said, Jesus beat the devil with a big, ugly stick. Wham! A wicked, ugly stick called a Roman cross. And Jesus beat the devil. Crushed his head. We live from that victory, but there's still fighting to be done. Right? 
The victory's been won, but we must fight. Why do men overcome? Why do young men, young women overcome? Because they are strong. The word in the Greek here means mighty, forcible. It can even mean violent. And that's not physical violence, but they approach their, their Christian faith and their spiritual development with intentionality and vigor. It's not a passive thing. Let's go, let's go relax our way down the Salt River and drink beer and listen to the rock, whatever. We're not tubing it with the flow of the river. We're swimming up river. Young men and young women do this spiritually speaking. They are strong. There is a strength of soul to sustain the, the prolonged attacks of Satan in their life. And I believe perhaps he's talking about those, those temptations, those strong uh, ambitions of young people that must be curbed and overcome and, and refocused in Christ, lest Satan have victory over our lives and take us captive once again, not losing us to the kingdom of God, but certainly neutralizing our walk with Christ and truncating our growth. They are strong. That's how they overcome. But how are young men and young women strong and overcoming? Did you catch that phrase? Because the word of God abides in them. The word of God abides in them. They don't just listen to it. They don't just listen to it preached once a week. They don't just learn it and memorize it. It abides in them. They are living it in, in life. I love this Psalm 119, longest chapter in the whole Bible. But in verse 9 through 11, David asks, how can a young man keep his way pure? There's too many passions, I'm putting this in there, too many drives, too much, you know, youth and vigor and, and uh, uh, libido and all these things. How can a young man keep his way pure? And then he gives the answer, by guarding it according to your word. He goes on to say, with my whole heart, I seek you. Let me not wander from your commandments. I've stored up your word in my heart that I might not sin against you. He's pursuing the word of God. And not just to say, I know more verses than you do. He's saying, God, it's in me. Oh, please don't let me wander from it. I'm keeping my way according to it. This is what uh, the brother of Jesus, James, said in his little epistle, James 1.21. To receive with meekness the implanted word, which is able to save your souls. Receive it. Don't just know it. Don't just listen to it. Don't just memorize it. Practice it. Be intentional with your walk with Christ and your, your spiritual formation. And I quoted a theologian two weeks ago, to form their life in obedience to God. Form your life in obedience to God. Intentionalize it. Because the reception of God's word, spiritual intentionality is a source of all spiritual strength. And it produces victory in a victor instead of a victim. Every one of us has spent at least some time seeing ourselves as victims. Woe is me. I cannot believe that, that God allowed this in my life. And some of us spend most of our life there. But did you see what John calls us here? 
overcomers. Which is another way to say victors. And this strength and victory comes because of spiritual intentionality. We're out of time here this morning, but where do you find yourself today? What do you need to learn about yourself? What do you need to take all the way down into the deepest part of your heart and to begin to live out, not to question whether or not you're a son or a daughter, but in order to believe and live up and into all that is ours as sons and daughters. Father, please help us grow. Please help us grow. Thank you that you are our Father who is so intentional in parenting us. May we receive the word implanted. Not reject all of the things of life, challenges, adversity, things that we, we rebel against and we complain about and we pout, but that we would receive and say, this is, this is my discipleship curriculum. My real life discipleship curriculum that I might become a father in the faith, and know you intimately, deeply, him who is from the beginning. And that's our heart. And if you agree with that, say amen. Thank you for listening to Journey Church Tucson Sermon Podcast. We'd love to have you join us in person on Sunday mornings at 10 a.m. You can find out more about us at journeyefc.org.